Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am not joined by Martin Rolling Stone Willis because he is on the road, and for some reason, we can't get uh, the connection working. He was going to talk to us, and actually, he did for a little while, but uh, something happened, and it became a mess, unfortunately. Um, But uh, he says hi to everybody. And I'll mention some of the things he might. Well, he did tell me about Art Bell. Art Bell uh, is on the air. So he, Martin's show, Podcast UFO, is on the Dark Matters Digital Network, which is created essentially to host Art Bell when he came back on the air. And uh, so Art Bell is back. Uh, Dark Matters is, is friends of ours. They, they replay our show. In fact, I think we were kind of a placeholder in the spot where Art Bell was going to be. So uh, hopefully they'll keep playing us because uh, it's it's nice to be affiliated with that network. But if not, hey, you can always come to OpenMinds.tv to hear it. But Martin says he listened and that the sound quality was incredible. So Keith, their engineer, I had spoken with him and he said they were using some new technology. And I think this was in my Art Bell story about how they were using some new technology. And I guess it sounded crystal clear. They had some tests with people all over the country. So last night was like a test show and then the real show starts tonight. So uh, Martin said that. He also mentioned that I guess they got uh, somehow a uh ad or or a mention in times square so that's kind of crazy kind of cool somebody uh must be an art bell fan there that handles that it looked like it was a pr newswire kind of release uh scrolling thing so that's kind of cool so that's great um otherwise uh i guess i'll tell you about our guest our guest is really cool tonight it is kurt collins And uh, we'll talk to Kurt about how he got into UFOs. But what's great about Kurt is that he's a very careful researcher and a bit of a skeptic, I mean, in a lot of cases. But he'll talk about why he got interested into UFO research. Uh, He was part of the Roswell Research or Roswell Slides research group. So I probably mentioned his name several times when we talked about the Roswell Slides. Um, But we will talk a little bit about that, but not too much. We're going to talk more about another case that he's gotten into. In fact, he started a website and really got involved when he was investigating uh, the Cash Landrum UFO sighting. This is a really cool sighting that took place uh, many years ago where uh, three people, uh, two women and and a young man, who came across this UFO on a remote uh, road in Texas, and this thing, like, burned them. It, it somehow created these physiological effects that they had. They got sick, uh, really terrible. Their car got extremely hot. 
Uh, we'll talk about some of the strangeness. It then floated away uh, above and flew off, but uh, there were a bunch of helicopters supposedly following it, and this whole thing is extremely mysterious. So we're going to talk to Kurt about that and his research, which uh, is really great. In fact, he created a website called Blue Blurry Lines, where he has all of this research, and he's got a lot of great stuff on his website. So we're going to talk about him. I'm really excited to talk about him. And uh, uh, like I thought, you know, the interview turned out really great. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this. But first, talking about UFO news. So UFOs in the news. I finally wrote up my story on these Arctic UFO pictures. You might have seen these images And they uh, have gotten all over the news, especially in the UK, like I said before, you know, we talked about this last week, but uh, the UK is really into UFOs and uh, they have a lot of UFO stories. And this is one that they uh, had quite a bit of information about. So what happened is this guy named Alex Mistretta found these pictures, he says, uh, from he got them from an anonymous European source. Uh, Then someone told him that these pictures were also posted in a French magazine called Top Secret. He did say he went and looked and said, yeah, indeed, they are the same pictures. Uh, He then asked Greenwald and wrote to Greenwald, uh, John Greenwald of theblackvault.com and said, will you post these pictures? And he hoped that Greenwald and uh, others uh, could help him find more about the images. He also wrote what he knew about them. He says that his anonymous source told him that the photos were taken from a United States Navy submarine. The location was between Iceland and Jan Mayan Island in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Jan Mayan, I guess, uh, belongs to Norway, but we have a map here. You'll see it's uh, close to the Antarctic and, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere all by itself. But, um... This was supposedly in March of 1971 when these, they took these pictures. The Navy sub was the USS Trepang. Uh, there was an admiral on board, he says, called Dean Reynolds Sackett, and another officer, John Kilka, who supposedly was a guy who spotted these UFOs uh, in the periscope. Greenwald looked into it, and he found that indeed the Trepang was in that area in March 1971, that Sackett and Kilko were also on board. So the beginning of the in- this investigation looked really good. So what they wanted to do is get a hold of Sackett and Kilka. They enlisted this, the help of Steve Marillo, and this is a guy who runs the UFO and Paranormal Research Society uh, in Los Angeles. So he used to hold the uh, be in charge of the MUFON meetings out in Los Angeles before Denise Marcel. We found that out, you know, recently when we interviewed Denise. But um, now he he wanted to expand the group into more paranormal. So he has this, this meetup about uh, paranormal stuff. The reason they contacted him is that he's a former Navy pilot. Well, Marilla was able to get contact information for Sackett and uh, Kilka, Marillo contacted Sackett and uh, Mistretic contacted Kilka. And the guy said, yeah, we were in the Trepang at that time in that area, just like uh, John Greenwald had found. But they said we did not see anything strange, nor did, uh, to their knowledge did anybody else see anything strange. So they said it's not true that Kilka saw these things and took pictures of them. They thought the pictures were strange and didn't know what were in the pictures. 
but uh, it wasn't them. So Mistretta says he's convinced that they were telling the truth. And he says now that he's confident in saying that the Trepang was not involved with these photographs. So that's kind of a bummer that, uh, you know, that part did not pan out and send some of the information that came with the photos is not accurate. John Greenwald did some more searching because he felt that the images in the photos kind of looked like Zeppelins. And he found that in the early 1900s, indeed, they did use these large uh balloons the navy did and uh, he found images Uh, i also found an image where there was a a, a large kind of cigar-shaped balloon but also kind of a a weirder kind of v-shaped one uh, which we do see in these images so really it seems like these balloons are what's in the images but the images are really good they're definitely from a periscope you can tell that Um, and it looks like they're using these things for target practice and they're firing on them Whether or not these pictures were from the early 1900s or 1970s, it's hard to say. They are, uh, and, you know, they're great pictures. They're in color. I guess it's possible they were colorized. Uh, But you'll have to take a picture and look. So the question is, are they a complete hoax, you know, um, is this, or what's going on with these pictures? And they're still looking into them. In fact, Mistretta is going to speak tomorrow at um, Murillo's, paranormal group to talk more about this in los angeles and at openminds.tv in our story on this i have a link to his meetup so if you want to go and you're in the la area you can find out more information at openminds.tv what else i wrote about this and, and greenwald agrees is that what's disappointing is that the media coverage has not included the investigation all it says is that here's some great pictures. They supposedly come from the Navy. It's this proof of aliens, you know, real sensationalistic type of information and headlines. And it's unfortunate because I think the real story here is a great investigation that was done by Mistretta and Greenwald and Murillo. And it demonstrates that UFO researchers are not just a bunch of goofballs. A lot of them are careful researchers looking for the truth. So uh, I think it's frustrating that the the news stories about this did not cover that. Those dirty, rotten scoundrels. No, Uh, they just I think that the media, as we've talked about before, should do their due diligence around this. So uh, we've talked about it before. In fact, last week we talked about the Welsh government. Talking about Klingon, you know, answering a UFO question in Klingon and the media covering that and, you know, it it allows them to kind of make fun of everything. And uh, in fact, Nick Pope had tweeted that, you know, this was the sort of tactics he used. Uh, when he worked for the U.K. government looking for UFOs. And we interviewed Nick Pope about this. And you can see that interview on the Open Minds TV YouTube page. You can also see this at openminds.tv. And this is on our latest UFO report, the Open Minds UFO report videos that we do. Uh, we try to do weekly. And we posted one Friday with an interview with uh, Nick Pope talking about how, you know, he made fun of UFOers and not, because they felt the whole subject was ridiculous. On the contrary, he says that they felt, you know, that uh, this topic was very important. So it's a great interview we got. Uh, You can even see Nick Pope speaking some Klingon. Uh, In another story, I think this is a great one too. This is some Turkish pilots who saw UFOs. So a Turkish paper called Sabah 
wrote a story uh, about these two pilots that say they believe in UFOs. And they say the reason why is because they've seen UFOs. So one of these pilots talks about a flight he made from Osaka to Istanbul. And he says along the, the way they saw this bright light and that this bright was so incredibly intense they couldn't look at it directly and that there were other pilots that saw this as well. And because of this sighting, that's why he believes in UFOs. Um, they said they did talk to the tower and the tower said it, it didn't know what it was that they had seen or, or along those lines. I, I must admit that I had to use Google Translate because I often, you know, you guys know this, I uh, will look at international stories and use Google Translate to find some more UFO stories uh, like this one, a great one. But, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot is lost in translation. Another pilot in the story, he says in October of 1989, he was flying from Zurich to the Turkish town of Antalya when he saw, he said he was over Yugoslavian airspace. They saw some weird objects at about 2,000 meters. That it was a light cluster that was um, several different colors. He said the primary colors, so I'm assuming he means um, red, yellow, and blue. He said they were larger than a normal plane. Uh, then uh, they called the Istanbul Tower, and they said they didn't see it on radar. Then the multicolor lights rose to 44,000 feet, turned into a white ball of light, and then disappeared. So another really interesting sighting. And what's just cool about these sightings is, you know, pilots are up in the sky on a regular basis looking at stuff, seeing the night skies, seeing the skies. So that's why I think it's important when pilots see something, you know, they're 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 more used to watching the skies, so I think that they, their um, testimony when it comes to UFO reports is uh, important. Someone who disagrees is a na- man by the name of Jim Oberg, and he writes for Space.com. You see his stories on MSNBC, and he writes for uh, a lot of places on space. He's a space expert journalist. He's been in the business for decades, a bit of a UFO skeptic. But what's great is he's into the topic, and he reads our stories and others. He commented. He said, he said, and your reason for thinking this story was significant without providing a date, time, or location of it was what exactly? Especially on an air route passing close to the Bacanor Cosmodrome. Well, Mr. Oberg, I think it's obvious. I said, uh, I responded, and I said, I think it's it's obvious to our readers, and I'm sure it is to you as well, that reports from pilots are really interesting. Of course, we don't always have all the data, so we can go back and research and do this, uh, you know, thorough investigation. A lot of times, most UFO stories are anecdotal, but still... These are pilots, so I think it's important. I think it's certainly worth noting and sharing um, what these people discovered. Obviously, the Turkish news felt that way, and and so did I. He does make a good point, and he could have made this point without sounding like such a grouch. I've told him before, you you often sound kind of grouchy, Jim. But um, his point is that uh, the route from Asia to... 
um, Turkey would take you past Kazakhstan. And in Kazakhstan is the Bakanor Cosmodrome. And this Cosmodrome is where they re- the Russians launch a lot of rockets. So I assume he is suggesting that it could be rockets that this these pilots had seen. Now, knowing pilots myself, typically they fly the same route, route uh Day in and day out, you know those routes change, but they'll they'll fly the same route for a long time. And um, these pilots are probably used to flying past the Cosmodrome or, or in the vicinity. And I would assume that they've seen rocket launches before, so they wouldn't confuse them with that, especially over all of these years. However, it's a possibility. So uh, Mr. Oberg certainly makes a good point. It's worth pointing out that uh, the Cos you know, the Cosmodrome is somewhat, you know, on that route. So thank you for pointing that out, Mr. Oberg, uh, if you did do it in such a kind of a snippy manner. But he's a grouchy old guy. You know, lots of old guys. I hope, you know, old guys, that, that makes me think. I kind of think that old guys kind of come into two gat- categories. They're either really grouchy or really silly. Like, uh, and they'll, they use puns and for a man, and I think a lot of you goofy guys out there, I'm a goofy guy. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And the older you get, the more you start using puns and laughing at puns and liking puns and, uh, becoming punny. So old men are punny. So I think this is something that us guys should think of as we age is what kind of man are we going to turn into? Are we going to be one of these grouchy old guys who just, ah, stupid kids, get out of my way, ah, you know, you, you've ran into these guys. You know what I'm talking about. Or we're going to be the, the silly old guy, and everybody loves the silly old guy, and that's what I want to be. That's really when it comes down to it. When I grow up, I want to be a one of the silly, funny old guys. So I think I'm headed in that direction, but uh, this field can be so contentious. And some of you, some of you people listening, quite frankly, right now can be such um, jerkies when you comment. (laughs) And, you know, lots of the people who comment on social media can be so mean that uh, I may just get completely cynical and turn into one of those grouchy old guys. But then again, the vast, vast majority of the listeners are really cool people like you all listening right now and uh, who come up and say hi at conferences and will send us a nice note occasionally. And you're the ones that I, I love to death, and you're you're my salvation. You're the reason that I'm probably going to be the goofy guy. So we got way off on a tangent, but being that... The UFO field, especially when it comes to researchers and stuff, is so full of old guys. Um, I think that that topic somewhat pertains still. But let's go ahead and talk to a younger guy. He's not so much old. Uh, Kirk Collins, uh, our interviewee. And uh, speaking of someone who's headed to to old guy uh, in that direction is is Martin Willis, who unfortunately we had problems and couldn't connect, but... uh, Thank you anyway, Martin. And, of course, he has podcast UFO. Um, he's actually driving, and he's near New York City, and he's driving to go visit Ray Stanford, who's going to be uh, the guy he's going to interview on Wednesday. So you could check that out uh, on the Art Bell Dark Matters Network on uh, Wednesday. 
So that's what's going down, people. That's the news, the UFO news. You can find more at openminds.tv. But without further ado, let's speak with Kurt Collins. I am very excited. <laughs> I know, and I always make fun of myself. I always say I'm so very excited to have someone on the show. And I was excited last week. I was excited the week before. And I'm excited this week to have Kurt Collins on the show. Hello, Kurt. Hello. I was wondering, um, just as far as titles go, uh, you know, it seems in the past you've talked about how you haven't been in this long. and uh, But I think of you as a UFO researcher. Um, would you mind if I called you that? No, that's, a, that's as good a title as any. Um, yeah, let's uh -huh. go with that. Great, because really you are, I think. So, But uh, let's get into kind of how you got involved with this stuff. And, and for people who don't know about you and your work, they're going to learn a lot more about that. Uh, I've mentioned you on the show several times before, uh, especially in regards to the Roswell slides. But, uh, yeah, we'll get into all of this. Um, to begin with, I guess, let's talk about... Uh, when you did start, you know, diving into all of this, and what inspired that? Well, there was an initial childhood interest in UFOs and all sorts of mysterious things. There was, there, um, you know, I grew up in the um, uh, in the sixties, and there, there were a lot of things happening. You know, and I wasn't aware of like the uh, the Condon Committee and Blue Book shutting down and that sort of things, but the um, like the and. And some of the things also in the 70s, like, you know, certainly the, the news coverage of um, the uh, Travis Walton case and and here in Mississippi, the um, Pascagoula abduction case. That was, you know, that was huge news locally and, and, and nationally as well. So there were there were a lot of things and, and other mysteries, you know, from Jack the Ripper, Bigfoot, all sorts of uh, paranormal things were really big in the 70s and you couldn't avoid it. And but the UFO uh interest kind of stuck with me all my life mm -hmm. so i know you're, you're which i appreciate very skeptical you take a skeptical approach to all of this and and um you know someone else that does that that you know listeners would be familiar with her is mark d'antonio um and if you didn't know better you would think there was no ufo case that mark d'antonio believes but of course he's very into all of this now do you believe there is a genuine phenomena i do I or feel mystery much, yes i think so um now i can't i can't define it i think there's there's unfortunately there is a lot of fakery and fraud and and um and that that really confuses the issue i mean it's almost like it's you know well we, we know there's serial video hoaxers out there and there have been people that you know claimed to have served on Mars and, and all sorts of, of wild things is outlandish and there's not a shred of evidence for. But there um there are enough genuine cases, you know, even like the, the Blue Book report, uh the uh, the reports themselves are, are really interesting. I don't always agree with the analysis. Sometimes they're just really quick to explain things away, but the reports themselves were made by credible observers and in some cases you got radar and and in rare cases, photographs, things to examine. But you know, there's something there's something to this. You know, even um, I'm even interested in the psychological aspect of sometimes the 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 things that can be identified. They can still have a a, a big effect on people. Mm-hmm. 
Right, I agree. Um, so I guess when I first started noticing your work uh, was when you started posting in the UFO updates uh, forum. I guess it used to be it was online and, and now it's uh, in Facebook. It's not its own page. But uh, And you started posting a lot about the Cash Landrum case for which, and I believe that is what inspired you to put up your website, Blueberry Lines. Is that correct? That's right. And to, to back that up a little bit, um, I became um, interested in, in, in the UFOs more, well, renewed my interest really in, in about 2011. And I'd seen this film. It was a, a, a documentary on Gray Barker. And uh, it was really interesting because he seemed to have a, a genuine interest in UFOs, but he was also involved in a number of, of UFO hoaxes. And in the film, uh, his um, his friend and collaborator, uh, James Mosley, was featured. And he, uh, he published Saucer Smear. And I said, well, you know, I couldn't get in touch with Gray Barker and find out much about him, but uh, Jim Mosley seemed to be pretty accessible. So I started writing to him, and you know, to my surprise, he gave me a phone call back instead of returning my letter. And and I I got to be, uh, you know, eventually got to be friends with him, well, pen pals and phone pals, and and he just had a was just had a wealth of information. I mean, he just knew about knew just about everyone in the field and had all this experience and had done his own personal investigations. And, and that's um, eventually he he was writing a story on the Cash Landrum case, and he asked me to dig up some background material, and that's where I initially became involved in the case. Oh, I see. That's really interesting, and I love this this stuff. I mean, James Mosley, uh, Sasha Schmier, for people who don't know, and practically nobody. In fact. There will be a very small, small, I would guess maybe even one or two people listening to this show who even got this saucer smear. But you can find some online. But it was such a fun paper. It was one of those kind of guilty pleasures because uh, Jim Mosley was very satirical. He was very... Uh, uh, he would make fun of things, but he had a genuine interest. He was also skeptical, and it was kind of like a gossip rag, you know, and, and that we all, people in the field especially, because that's who he was talking about, liked to read it, or some of us, um, even though you never knew when you were going to be, you know, the focus of some <laughs> some smear. Uh, even Luckily, I, I had some minor stuff, but uh, I wasn't really bashed too much in, in any of it. But uh, James was a great, fun guy. I interviewed him. Unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, but there's only a few hundred people that got that paper newsletter that he would send out. And like you said, he was friends with this Gray Barker. Now, I've always been more skeptical of Gray Barker because of the hoaxes he was involved with. Um, even though Mosley was kind of his partner, I know Gray Barker and James even said kind of ran a little more wild with those hoaxes. Does that give you pause, those hoaxes? Um, what do you think of that aspect of Gray Barker? It's, I think it's, well, I find it fascinating. I've, I'm, I'm interested in UFO hoaxes and the psychology behind it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, there are people do that for, for a number of different reasons. One, you know, some are, some are almost like, uh, 
uh, like arsonists. You know, these guys set fires and then enjoy watching, you know, how it plays out. <laughs> and this is a little less destructive than that. And other people, you know, they're jokers. And then there's obviously some people in it for financial return. And the, uh, you know, people talk about, and I, I, I talked to Jim Mosley about it, and, he, and his, um, um, he seemed to agree that the, uh, the reputation that, that Barker had as a hoaxer was a little overstated because really what he did was he mostly, um, well, I don't know if I want to say repackaged exactly, but he tended to take, uh, take stories and a lot of, a lot of them were from the, from the early contactees and he would, he would publish them, but he also added literary flourishes and some dramatic touches. And, you know, I don't think they, he fabricated in most cases, but there were other cases in his magazine where, where there were stories that were just totally, totally fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but his, um, um, there, there, there's no doubt though, that there were, there were some things that were you know, just totally created. And I think the, uh, well, he was also a prankster too. That's something we've got to think about mm-hmm. that, um, uh, uh, together, uh, Jim, Mostly, and uh, and Gray Barker played pranks on uh, John Keel, and both phone pranks and and things like that. And the uh, the um, the story with the Men in Black, they they sort of perpetuated that. And there were other that we associated things in the Men in Black that we don't think so much about now, like doppelgangers. They would there would be claims of uh, oh well, look like a Jim Mosley appeared here. Well, a lot of times it was really Jim Mosley. Uh, playing a prank on a friend and, and yet it might get written up as if it was some paranormal event. So there were a lot of things that, that sort of stemmed out of, um, just, um, well, well, really, really pranks. And, and some of it just lodged into UFO lore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll get more into this, I guess a little later, but I guess some of what they did too. And I think it concerns you. It concerns a lot of people in the UFO updates for him especially with recent events uh which we'll get into Uh, a lot of these pranks they pulled were to show how a lot of researchers and i think they felt keel was one of these were just too gullible that's true and oh i almost forgot um one of the things that eventually uh after Jim died. Um, Gene Steinberg of the Paracast set up a, a Jim Mosley memorial site, jimmosley.com. And it was really just a, a, a placeholder. And so I said, well, you know, I can put some content on it. So I've got, I've wound up putting um, a number of my articles and some guest articles and a lot of photographs and news clippings on, on Jim Mosley. So you can find a, a lot about him, including some of the, uh, the pranks and a few of the hoaxes that were that were put and I'm trying to be you know to, to give that honest coverage and um, the um, I guess some of them well they were definitely not scientific the only thing I can say is you know there was some useful mis- mischief going on there and uh, the uh, Jim Mosley's take on things and his you was, was not nearly as as serious as as if he were a, a scientist you know he, yeah. he came into it as kind of an amateur journalist and over time he matured and and really took a more a more serious outlook on the topic but as far as the personalities he always had the the humorous outlook on that mm-hmm. and he could give it as much as he could take it i think he appreciated i think uh 
truthfulness, uh, even though he hoaxed and pranked, you know, they were willing, or at least he was willing to admit to that, because that was the whole point, to say, haha, we tricked you, um, sort of thing, uh, and even though he would bash people for things, he uh, certainly was willing to take criticism as well. His, um, he also did some, a number of legitimate investigations, and he helped expose the uh, the uh, George Anamsky fraud, um, and, and he contacted other people. And Adamski had, had published photographs claiming that the uh, the the ship that he had seen was photographed by another person. Well, really, he had just credited it to the other person, and and wanted mm. to, you know to add corroboration. And um, he just he really inflated things far beyond the um, uh, any, anything that might have actually happened, mm-hmm. and, and just um, just and and also you know he called himself professor, which he had no right to do. That was an informal thing. And he represented himself. He he was basically a, a fry cook at a at a hamburger stand on on Mount Palomar. But using the name Professor and then there's the observatory at Mount Palomar, someone who didn't know is going to assume that he has he's a scientific professor and he's part of the observatory. And, and so this was, uh, you know, to, he, he exposed that and, you know, was almost a leader of a small cult. And it was quite different from the way he represented himself. Mm-hmm. And just for listeners who don't know, George Adamski was really famous California guy, uh, a um alleged contactee, probably the most famous of that movement that happened uh, like in the 50s. And uh, in f- the pictures of his UFOs are, are iconic now with those three little balls on the bottom. Um, not too dissimilar from what Bob Lazar uh, says they look like, but uh, you could look that up. But I do want to get it more into your research, and I do want to talk about Cash Landrum, which is a uh, such an interesting case, and I was wondering if maybe to start off, if you could kind of explain those events in a nutshell. Um, that might be difficult <laughs> for you, yeah, but as as best as possible. Well, you know, I guess I, I, rather than than really describe it, I, I'll just kind of identify it. You know, it it. Um, but one of the things that's unusual about it, it was, is it's almost a twin event to the uh, the Rendlesham Forest case. They hit, it happened within days of each other in December of 1980, and this uh, this event was in uh, Huff, near Huffman, Texas, and uh, two ladies, uh, Betty Cash, Vicky Landrum, and Vicky Landrum's grandson were driving home about nine o'clock at night, and they saw a, a bright light through the trees, and it eventually, as they rounded the, a curve. They saw this huge, bright uh, object emitting flames, and it block, blocked their path. And they they um, stopped to look at it. And and later uh, they all suffered um, some discomfort. And Betty Cash, in particular, had um, some you know, severe skin problems, swelling, headache, and you know some of the symptoms resembled that of radiation poisoning. And the the uh, the event was so strange they had agreed um, not to tell anyone about it. And, hmm. and I'm skipping a lot of details here, but there were also there was this fleet of helicopters that were involved, which later led them to believe that it was some sort of military operation, whether it was a you know, in pursuit of a UFO or whether the UFO was a government project. But uh, Betty was uh, hospitalized 
for several weeks and it, the doctors were just had no clue as to what was wrong with her ran all sorts of tests and it was only um it was Colby that actually told that that the UFO could have been the cause of it so um and, and it's it's a there were there were several phases to the story but um I'll stop here and see if you have a particular question yeah, I think the events of when they stopped and observed the craft were really interesting. And you could correct me and clarify, but essentially, uh, you know, one of, I think one of them got out of the car, and then they, they was the dashboard melting or just really hot? And uh, it, it they they were feeling this ex- extreme heat, correct? That's right. The the object was producing uh, both extreme light and, and heat, and you know, they, it seemed to be, it was, it was flame-like exhaust, whether, whether it was flames or plasma, you know, we're not real sure, but they, um, they later, um, d- described it as, as flames. And they, the car, you know, they had to shield their eyes from the, um, the brightness of it. And the car became hot. And it's, um, it's confusing about just when the, uh, the dashboard was, um, the, well, it wasn't, it wasn't completely melted, but it became softened from the heat. And at some point, Vicki Lanham had reached out with her hands and pressed, and it left an impression in, in the, uh, now this wasn't like putting your hands in cement. It wasn't that distinct, but you know, it did just, it just, it yielded to the pressure of her hand and it, it left a permanent impression. And the, when Betty Cash got back, she was she stayed outside to look at it the the longest. Colby was about seven years old. He was frightened, and Vicky got in the car to comfort and shelter him. Uh, Betty stayed outside a bit longer, trying to f- see what the object was. It was so bright they really couldn't determine what it was. They make make out the shape of it, and uh, the. Uh, when she got back in the car, because Vicky was calling for her, because you know, she wanted to, you know, let, let's get away from here. But they couldn't. They were, they were blocked. But when when Betty reached the uh, for the car the handle, it was so hot that she had to use her coat to open the handle. And uh, so the uh, and, and once they got back inside, it eventually lifted off. But the interior of the car was somehow heated, and they had to turn on the air conditioner. And it, this was about it was a mild. Uh, Texas um, winter, but it was about 40 degrees outside. Well, they had to they had to turn on the air conditioning to cool hmm. off the car. Wow! And so, was it as they left that they saw something like six or seven? Was it helicopters? Uh, large helicopters fly by. That that is a little bit confusing because okay. uh, the boy Colby saw said he saw helicopters from the time they first saw the UFOs but it was the ladies seemed to see them later and it was initially they were I think they were fairly far off because in, in the re- original testimony they saw they saw um, they weren't sure if they were helicopters or planes or what but as they went down the road they encountered because it was kind of a winding path they um, they saw the, the the helicopters um, much more closely you know, following the, the UFO. And, the, and part of the reason they could catch up with it was the UFO was described by them as, as um, almost, uh, well, they use words like that it, that it hovered, that it floated, and it flew away slowly. So this wasn't 
This wasn't like a, a flying saucer zipping around. This almost had more of a, you know, you, you could speculate, you know, with that, that it was balloon-like or, you know, anti-gravity or, or what, but it wasn't a, it wasn't, it wasn't a rapid flight. And so the helicopters uh, were able to, to pace it. And so from the second location, that's where they got a really good look at the helicopters and could see that they had, uh, that they, uh, well, they didn't know what kind they were at the, but, you know, there were CH-47s, you know, which are huge, bigger than a bus, and they have the two uh, rotors on top. And so they got, um, they were they were sil- silhouetted from the light. They couldn't see markings on them or, um, you know, fine details like that. But they they got a good look. And also there was, you know, huge noise from the helicopters themselves. And, oh, and is, speaking of noise, the, the UFO was emitting some sort of series of beeps. And um, there was there was also some kind of roaring. Well, I'm trying to think. There was there was a sound they described as more like a, a whooshing of of air brakes, and and I think that was associated with the jet of flames. Hmm. So it was there was you know there's an indication from that that it was uh, it was something mechanical. You know, it wasn't uh, like just some cloud of plasma or something like that. That it was it was a physical mechanical object. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I believe uh, at le- they all suffered from medical uh, effects they believe were a result of this sighting. Is that correct? That's, that's controversial. One of the things we have to remember in this case was that it was almost it was almost two months later before it was really reported uh, you know, they, Betty went in the hospital about three days later, and it was it was only um, once she finally told her doctor several weeks later, uh, and then the doctor insisted that she report it. So she she reported it to oh, oh it was Vicky Landrum who it was only Betty Cash that was hospitalized. First of all, let me back up there. Vicky and Colby were their symptoms were such that they were able to take care of themselves at home and they had they reported and see their their injuries are not, are not well documented but they had um they had flu-like um, symptoms and also uh, red skin as if they'd been uh, sunburned and their also their eyes were um affected by the by the the brightness and vicky lander had gone to her eye doctor and um she had been given a new set of uh, glasses new prescription and also he had you know he, he noted that her eyes seemed to have suffered you know from some sort of injuries from a lot brightness mm-hmm. and so uh now in in your investigation i mean what's uh, a lot of people you know the old-timer ufo guys who who know of this case and have looked at it um john schusler uh who was the director of MUFON and one of the founders of MUFON, he was actually a mentor of mine. He wrote a book about it. I know it was involved in the case. but And he believes it was not uh, a human um, craft. Uh, but there is some debate that if it seemed to have, you know, uh, radioactive properties or if this is radiation they suffered from, that perhaps this was uh, some sort of nuclear-powered experimental craft, especially given the helicopters. Um, I don't know if you know this. You probably do. I've interviewed John Alexander, 
uh, you know, the Army colonel uh, retired and uh, about this case. He thinks it was extraterrestrial and that the helicopters weren't real, that they were projections uh, by this craft somehow. Um, uh, so a lot of opinions out there as to what it was. What are, what are, how do you feel? What is the evidence either way? Well, you, you know, uh, John Alexander, I'm wondering if he got his ideas on that from uh, uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He was interviewed in Omni Magazine, and his, uh, he suggested something that was virtually identical to that. He he thought it was, he talked about maybe some sort of uh, holographic projection that could have physical effects on, on things, and he thought that was, but because they looked everywhere, I mean, his his uh, uh, teammate um, Alan Hendry had looked for the source of the helicopters and came up came up dry. No one could could locate them. The Army did an internal investigation and, and they couldn't locate you know any matching ASAR. Uh, and you know they, they there were big helicopter operations at the time. Uh, they were preparing for this uh, hostage rescue in Iran. So they they were they were running training missions, but not during this. This would have been during the Christmas to New Year's holiday, and you know the bases were they were like basically a skeleton crew. So you know it, it's very perplexing. But so there, it's I don't know that 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 is so speculative and, and goes into just because you can't find a source of, of helicopters. I'm not ready to go into. To uh, you know, alien mental or, or holographic projections, but you know it's. But the craft itself is so unlike anything that that has been designed. I mean, the the it was Colby that insisted it was diamond shaped. The women couldn't really make out the shape of the thing, but you know, just the way that it behaved and. Uh, is just so unlike anything that we've developed. It's just hard to imagine the, you know, how it would land, the, what purpose it would serve if it was a military vehicle. And one of the things that's, that's so strange about this is that the development process for military aircraft is is often five to ten years or longer, and. There's just like a massive. If you look at any of the Lockheed projects or things, things like that, there's so many people involved, the engineers. It there would just seem to be a record. And you know, if I, I'm just not convinced that it was a, a military aircraft, you know, and I don't know, I'm not going to jump to the 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 ET explanation, but it's it's a genuine unknown. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I don't know, uh, you would probably know more about this, but this is kind of the area of Stanton Friedman's uh, expertise. He worked on uh, nuclear-powered, uh, uh, essentially, experiments in, in powering different devices and vehicles with nuclear power. And I, I, he has said that he doesn't believe we had anything close to that. Uh, he has a more... Um, articulate and uh, a great explanation i think he gives examples of what they were working on but uh well i tend to agree with him there and what's interesting is if you go back and and look at some of the uh the interviews from the 80s he actually changed his position on that and that's not something he does very often but i think he you know he looked at the the, the facts of things and and uh revised his position on that but one of the things that um is um, I think that hurts the, the nuclear aircraft theory 
was the fact that it doesn't match the injuries. And you mentioned John Alexander earlier. He was a he was involved in the the army's investigation of this in a minor way. George Saran had been uh, given the task to determine whether or not the, the army helicopters were involved. But he was in doing a thorough job. He contacted some people, uh, uh, Captain Peter Rank and John Alexander and uh, Richard Nemso. All these these guys were in the military and had a UFO interest. Um, and one of the things that, that just didn't add up was that the for Betty Cash in particular to have the, the symptoms so soon, she would have had to have a, a lethal dose of radiation to have the, the onset of the skin problems, the the uh, the flu-like symptoms, and the, the hair loss. So, and, and also the hospital test that they had run didn't didn't match that. So it. You can match some of these symptoms to things like even chemical exposure or in some of the symptoms match microwave radiation. It didn't match anything that we really knew. And, you know, again, I'm not just because it because it doesn't add up. I'm not ready to say, you know, well, then it's alien radiation. But it's there's so many things in this case, like the helicopters and the the, the nature of the radiation that um you can get like three pieces that start to fit together and looks like, okay, we've got this. And then, it, but when you add the other pieces, you know, you just, it's, they, they contradict and it, you're just left with puzzle. But the, the event seemed genuine. Certainly the effect on the witnesses was genuine, but mm-hmm. you know, we're left with these conflicting details and it, it's, um, yeah, hopefully there's, um, there's still some information out there, whether whether it's going to be from helicopter pilots or some some records that haven't been released. And, you know, there's even the potential of some uh, local witnesses that um, have have kind of gone quiet that there. This this case is not so ancient that it that it's going to be a dead end. I think there's still hope to, to get some more information about things. And there's a surviving witness, Colby Lander. Is still alive now. Whether or not he can provide any more information, you know, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. What did their doctors uh, feel happened, or, or were the, you know, what was the diagnosis? I think that uh, John Schuessler's book has the best information on that. Now, sadly, it's out of print, and you know. I, I monitor it on on eBay. I, I have a copy. I was I was lucky enough to get it for under two hundred dollars, but it sells uh, regularly for about five fifty. It was asking price because it was a self published book. It had a, a a limited print run. I'm not sure. You know, maybe a thousand or two copies. So it, it's it's pretty rare, but it's it's mainly a compilation of his his reports, and in the back of it there there are a number of photographs and documents. There are not. There are not um, medical reports re- reprinted in their entirety. It's made mainly a summary of things, but the and the doctors refer to Betty Cash's skin problems as things like um, um, well, I was now I've gone blank on the word. It wasn't contusions, but it was you know they don't refer to it specifically as burns, and it was it was as if she had this uh, she had a series of of, uh, 
of bumps and her scalp was swollen and she had uh, uh, blisters over her eyes. Her ears were swollen and she had this, you know, terrible crippling headache along with these uh, flu-like symptoms. But what they didn't, and, and they ran blood tests, but they didn't determine uh, radiation poisoning. So, you know, whatever happened, it wasn't it wasn't something as simple as like walking by an open nuclear reactor. Hmm. It was something far more complex than that. But the thing is, even though the in- injuries are puzzling, they um, they correspond to the UFO sighting. They're medically documented. It's just, you know, it's it, but it's, you know, we're left with kind of some puzzling details. And, and what's frustrating is the the fact that. Uh, that Colby and Vicky weren't um, admitted to the hospital. They, they were they were treated. Now, uh, one, one interesting thing is uh, the media has played a big role in this case from the very beginning, and um, the uh, it was a tabloid newspaper, the Weekly World News, that broke the story. Now, the, the Weekly World News is known for like ridiculous stuff like Bat Boy, but in its early days, it was fairly straightforward, and they did actually a pretty good job of reporting this case. Um, you know, other than some kind of sensational language, the, the details of the story were, were spot on. And um, the um, that caused uh, um, the uh, Good Morning America to take notice. And hmm. the, the it was featured on, on this. And from there, um, that's incredible. If you remember that old show, mm-hmm. they, they did a story on it. And, and that was uh, they got they got deeply involved. They they met with uh, the the witnesses in July of 1981, and uh, then later, uh, Vicky Lanham appeared uh, uh, in the studio and, and was hypnotized by by Dr. Leo Sprinkle and told the story. And the uh, the anguish of her reliving the experience was was really profound. And uh, you, the thing is, hypnosis, as we know. You, it's it's not a method of getting to the truth, and it it can kind of, I think it did accurately reflect her experience and the way that it felt. But it's just you know if you don't have if you don't have the information, you know she can't she can't tell you the nature of the craft if she didn't see it. You know she can't tell you who was inside or what it was. Just you know just from hypnosis. You know you can be, you can be made to speculate. But um, it was it was from during the show, one, one of the things they did that was that was unique, they got uh, they they couldn't get the hospital that had examined Betty to talk about it, but they got they took I'm not sure if Colby was examined, but both Betty and Vicky were examined at um, the Methodist Memorial Hospital, and you know one of the doctors that examined them talked about it, and he, all they could really say was that the skin conditions and things resembled radiation exposure, you know. They couldn't say definitely, but, um, you know, it was, um, so again, you know, they, they, they were subjected to something that had real physical effects, but it's, it, it's a mismatch to the things that we, you know, we can't say it's chemical. We can't say it's radiation. And, and, you know, if it was a spectrum of things, well, that's, that's possible, but it's not something we can duplicate either. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. What an incredible case. And, and Blue, um, tell people that your URL where they can find out more information about it. BlueBlurryLines.com. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is there's I've managed to dig up a lot of documents from different sources, 
and uh, including some of the uh, the files from the notorious skeptic Phil Class because he had an interest in it. And and what I've done is if you go to the uh, blueblurrylines.com across the top of the page, there's um, uh, resources and I've, I've got a collection of those documents and you can say, and, and that's something I encourage people to do in any case they're interested in it, try to go to the source material. If there's a mm-hmm. police report or original MUFON report or whatever, you know, it's blue book is, is go to the source, you know, examine and you know, with that earliest testimony, don't rely on a summary and somebody's, you know, opinion on it because they all, you know, bias creeps into everyone's, um, it's just any any times the story is repeated, you know, some details are lost or things are overemphasized. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of Phil Class, you know, and the hardened skeptics, I'm sure there were skeptics who uh, believed there were prosaic answers. Most likely, they they called it a hoax. But uh, you know, what were their arguments? Uh, what was their evidence? And and was there any weight to their their um, claims there there's been a few one was um Stuart Campbell he's in listening to reports he said that because the um the moon had been mentioned in some of the reports well that meant that the moon at the time wouldn't have come up until after midnight it was in the third quarter phase and he said well then they had to have been wrong about the time and so if that's the case, he claimed that what he had seen was, um, I forget which star it was, but he, he said that that star was particularly bright. And so I don't know how he got the rest of the story from them just seeing a, a bright star, but that was, that was one thing. But the, um, so, so the, the, the moon part was definitely in, in error. I think that was probably in a, uh, when, when they were trying to, uh, when John Schuessler was trying to describe how the uh, the helicopters were visible, you know, he was talking about the uh, the light from the the city and and the glow from the moon. Well, the moon wasn't up, so that that was just a mistake. And as far as as Phil Class, he uh, relied a lot on information from uh, Gary Posner. He's not as well known these days, but he's a he's a, um, uh, a um, notorious skeptic as well, and he's he was also um, I forget his he he's a doctor I forget his his particular discipline but it's not radiation, and he studied a lot on this and he's it was his theory that uh, uh, basically the injuries were covered were caused by a sun lamp, and that it was faked. Hmm. So you know I didn't find that to be likely. Uh, a more recent skeptic. Um, it goes by the name of Zom Chomsky. With no evidence of it whatsoever, he claims that it was a household cleaner that Betty Cash had poured on herself and had, had ingested and that she overdid it. And that's what almost caused her to die. And I thought, oh, that is that is so heinous because, you know, you're not only are you just assuming that uh, that the, the witnesses are dishonest, that they would go to the links to injure themselves mm-hmm. and nearly kill themselves. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's outlandish. And um, if I remember correctly, they had good reputations. Well, they did. Um, and, you know, something interesting about that, you know, John Schuessler took a, took a close um, 
uh, interest in this case, became friends with him. He even described his relation to him as kind of being a, being a rabbi for him. He he was sort of a late liaison in the press, and he um, you know invested the case, investigated the case personally, and tried to get help for him. I think in a sense, he probably got too personally involved. And I think he may have kind of lost some objectivity there. But um, there's no doubt that they, um, the the little bit of help that they got, you know, he's responsible for for seeing that. And, you know, he, if nothing else, they did get, they didn't get satisfaction, but they did get some comfort from having their story told. Mm -hmm. And, And for the most part, the, um, they were um, they were pretty well received in in the press. You know, people people thought they were credible. They, um, you know, I don't unlike some of the other um, UFO witnesses. I don't think they they were subject to to that much ridicule. You know, mm-hmm. at least not in in the, in the media stories that I that I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were there was a lot of newspaper coverage and the um, when. Um, there, there, there was a long legal battle too, and that, that's kind of a long story. But it, that's that's documented. But uh, ultimately, was thrown out of thrown out of court because there was insufficient evidence. Mm-hmm. You know the uh, the the, um, um, the all other branches of the armed services said, well, they didn't operate anything that that resembled the the, the craft. Mm-hmm. Which is frustrating. I mean, I I and I understand John's frustration in that he feels so bad for these people who are struggling with these medical conditions and there should be some help and uh and just doing that by getting the military to admit well it wasn't ours uh is significant when it comes to the case and what it might have been but uh still there should be some help for these people i think he felt and i think everybody who reads his story feels and so it's tragic in that sense which i I could see why um, John, you know, we get so personally wrapped up in it, just trying to help these poor people. Oh, one thing I, that I should mention, someone, um, I, I found a lot of people helpful when I was was trying to um, dig for more information on this. You know, I, I talked to uh, I had the um, Phil Class uh, files. I got those from the, uh, um, oh gosh, American Philosophical Society. He he left his records to that, and, and I actually had to purchase copies of those. But I've also contacted libraries where they were able to give me, um, um, uh, provide me copies of newspaper articles and things like that. And uh, and a number of individuals. One one in particular was uh, Chris Lambright. He had um, conducted an investigation in 1985. He lived in Texas, and he went to, uh, to Dayton and interviewed Vicki Landrum twice. And um, he, um, he he had taken a video. Unfortunately, the, the audio on it's really bad. But it was a lengthy interview with uh, Vicki Landrum, and, and that was um, – I'm hoping to transcribe that and, and, and to uh, to print that at some point. But it was just, you know, it was great to, to see her in a relaxed setting and in a conversation, you know, tell her story and the difficulties that she had and her attitude on the court case. And the, there was something that one of the things I wanted to say about that was that 
I think the key events, you know, something actually happened. There's a lot of puzzles about that, but there, there were some other things later that, you know, that were, were basically rumor and, you know, confusing. Uh, like, you know, there's legends of the, the uh, road being torn up and replaced. And I don't, I don't think that's, that's, that's genuine only in the sense that it was an old country road and needed repair. And once it happened, there, they, this story's built up that it was missed, you know, it was, taken away because it was covering up the evidence of the radiation. And that, that just didn't seem genuine at all. But um, her her attitude about the court case, he had asked her, you know, would you, if the government settled out of court, would you, would you accept that? And she seemed very unhappy at that prospect because she wanted the, the truth to be told and it admitted in, in court. You know, and, and to be printed in the newspaper and, you know, some acknowledgement that, that it, things had actually happened. So, it was, you know, the, the public statement was was very important to her. And uh, there, um, you know, I, I, I found it, it was good to see that on film. I, I found her to be very sincere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great case. Uh, really interesting. In fact, it's so interesting. It took up most of our time. But before we're done. Uh, I would like to ask about, are there other cases that you've looked into as closely or, or that you've begun to um, uh, research in depth? Well, I focused on this one because I thought it was so, um, the the information, the documentation was so good. And mm-hmm. also there's no, it's not tainted by like phony photographs or phony documents like, you know, that, that bother so many other things. Um, but But from there... Um, it, it intersected with some things like um, I, I'm, I know that uh, that you've in, uh, investigated uh, Paul Benevitt's story. Well, he was interested in the Cash Lantern case, and he felt that it was a an instance where it, it was a government, you know, some sort of combination alien uh, U.S. operation and technology. And and so I had, I've looked into that, and uh, Richard Doty spread spread stories about the. Um, the cash lineup case. So from there, I got I got sort of into uh, the the Benowitz case, and I've also looked into some of the other other military operations. And there there are a lot of associated things like uh, oh the Leveland Texas case in the fifties where you know there was this huge bright object came down and and um, interfered with the vehicles. Hmm. Well, you know the 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 time is definitely different, but the the appearance of the object is similar, and um, so it, and it was emitting some sort of energy. So there, there are some other things like that 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 uh, unfortunately don't provide answers, but are interesting comparisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's um oh, and I mentioned I was interested in, in hoaxes. There's been some interesting cases where some most often it's college students get together. There, there was one in um, uh, Caltech, and, and this was right after the famous uh, swamp gas uh, incident. And they um, they came up with a fairly sophisticated balloon, had lights on it, and what what their what made their hoax unique was they had uh, uh, basically radar chaff. I think it was you know strips of foil, so that. Uh, not only would it be seen, but it would be tracked on radar. And so, and, hmm. you know, the, these scoundrels, uh, 
they tracked the effect in the media and you know people saw it and the um the reaction of, uh, to it they seemed to um ascribe behavior to it that a balloon couldn't do like it zipping off and 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 one woman who saw it said that when it was near she felt the the smell of perfume so Mm -hmm. you know it's an interesting psychological test that it could bring out these things that just you know clearly the balloon couldn't do so was this like uh late 50s or this would have been uh 67 i believe oh okay yeah and so but that was um that that was just just one of that one was more sophisticated a hoax than because most of the time it's just like so some hot air balloon or something like that and and people will see them and you know it's very confusing because uh, people can have these um, this same sense of wonder that that you you know, see from a, from a genuine uh, unknown from. And, and they they can become as convinced that they've seen something, um, and, and once you have that feeling, and and they say, oh well, no, this is a advertising airplane or a hot air balloon or something. Well, they they can remain convinced, and you know this emotional mm-hmm. reaction is hard to over, override. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you before we're done. Um, not that I think it's a hoax. I don't know that you do either, but uh, the Roswell slides, of course, it's been beaten to death on, on, on my show and, and by others, but uh, you were uh, one of the members of the Roswell uh, Slides Research Group, um, you know, the group that, you know, you guys did, <laughs> I, and I, and I, unfortunately, and I don't mean to slight some of the people uh, that were part of the original misidentification of these slides, but I think your group did more and better research in the short amount of time after the slides were shown than uh, the the slides proponents did in the years that they had it to do research. I mean, uh, I think that I really give you guys accolades for doing such a great job and, you know, I think cracking the case. Um, uh, you with, uh, well, just a number of other people. It, it's, it's a long list of people, so it's, a, it's hard to remember all the names. But um, when you got involved with that, I mean, do you feel that was a hoax, and, and what prompted you to get so involved with that? Well, it really just started off as, as a conversation. We, we had, a, had a group of people, and the um, and some of, some of the people had been following um Tony Bregalia and the, the Roswell case in general, and as, as this developed, because it was it was it sort of leaked out over a period of years, and uh, as it, it was really when once the announcement was made at the American University, and and it was it it was so the claims were so enormous it was like the smoking gun and this is going to be proof of of alien visitation and and from the Roswell crash, and with um, I, if it had been presented another way, I don't know if I would have, have taken as, as big an interest in it. So, I mean, but it's almost as if, you know, there's this big blockbuster movie coming and, you know, you're just like, well, you want to know, you want to read oh, every little magazine tidbit you get. And so it was kind of like that at first. And the more information that we got, uh, we, we started uh, putting together details. And, and some people had seen the slides and described them. And, uh, there was a, a Larry Lemke had had uh, described it and 
as as it was described though it was in a it was in a glass case and the way it was laid out and things it was just it sounded like well you know this sounds like this sounds like a museum exhibit and when eventually the uh, the image of the slide was leaked that's just what it looked like to me and we, you know we started uh, comparing it against um uh, f- photographs of, of different bodies, and we found a mu- mummy in the Smithsonian that closely resembled, and it was a body of a, a two to three year old boy from uh, from Egypt, and you know the the ribs and the, the condition of the cage, the, uh, the rib cage, you know so closely resembled it. So we said, you know this 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 is a humanoid, and I think it's a human child. So that was that was really where we got started. Then the the fact that the the placard was um, relatively easily deciphered. But see what what was different, I think, with us is that our group was interested in, in finding information and sharing it and examining it. And the uh, the Roswell uh, slides promoters the the. The owners of the slides had them sign this non-disclosure agreement, and there was all this secrecy that was brought into it, and it really inhibited research. Mm-hmm. And I think, and when they had to, uh, for example, when they when they gave the placard uh, to uh, to the uh, experts to try to decipher it, well, they only they didn't give them the the picture of the slide; they just gave them this this little clip of it, and you know, we're not even sure if they had. Um, well, I know in some cases they had given them versions that had been contrasted. So you, you didn't have the whole picture to work with. You didn't have the original image. It was, you know, either been brightened or, or, or they had already been, well, I don't mean to say tampered with, but altered. You didn't have the original image. And so it was just so fragmented. It, it the, the people that were working on it seemed to have their hands tied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and plus, they went in, I don't know how many of them that, were involved in it, but they went in with this this preconceived notion that this was a, an alien, and I think it, it kind of blinded them to other possibilities. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. You know, you make some great points um, because, for instance, with uh, the photos and the um, deblurring that was done by Nab, right? Is his name? Uh, at least his Facebook name. Um, you have to have that program. You have to have the picture. It, the more data you have is important because you have to kind of mirror the blur uh, and its angles in order to de-blur it, um, which is a long and tedious process that was luckily done by someone from your group. Uh, and I don't think they didn't contact experts who even knew de-blur existed. To be honest, until you guys released that, I didn't know these de-blur programs uh, were out there. As soon as I found out, I downloaded it and, you know, began uh, trying to work with it to de-blur the picture. And uh, it was just too long of a process. And luckily, you guys had a guy who did it. But um, uh, and so there was a lot of these guys, their hands were certainly tied. And uh, then friendships come along and 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 then strong personalities. Um, So there's so much socially. that was interesting, but I do think it's interesting, uh, and I think you guys have, some of you have made this point, um, because all of this peripheral stuff, such as relationships, professional or otherwise, uh, and friendships, and um, 
kind of this uh, grandiose kind of, um, um, and the egos, I guess, that get in the way, uh, and showmanship that all of this got in the way as well uh, to doing real research. That's true. And, you know, it, it, it's a shame because I, I just think that in any investigation, you've got to follow the evidence and, and, and somehow this got turned around from the very start. And I think uh, if you listen to uh, Tom Carey talk about the case, he said when he saw the, the slides, it connected with this uh, testimony that he heard about the, the child of the earth. And I think he made that association. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I think that that, um, I don't know if, if it was an emotional connection or a bias, but I think that that kept him from looking at things objectively. And um, the the other thing, oh, we're talking about hands being tied. Well, what, even when the uh, the ex, experts or consultants, I don't know if we should call them experts, when, when they were brought in, they were given them, they were given digital copies. No, you know, except for the, I think the Kodak analysis uh, analyst, that, that helped authenticate things. I, I think he's one of the few people that actually saw the original slides and everybody else was work, working from digital copies. And, and as we know now, the, um, the images were blurred. So, you know, anyone that was trying to, to, to examine this and they said, Hey, look, and I, I think that they, they said, Hey, tell me about this alien picture, you know, and that they went in with this preconceived notion and, um, the, uh, you, you, you can look now at the, uh, at the shelves, um, and, and see that the the, the uh, there's double images of the holes in the shelves, so you mm -hmm. know that the, the whole body is is also blurred, so some of the details are not that clear. But um, you know, it's, it, it's just puzzling to me that some of the other things in the photographs, like there there are other little signs available that are facing the other way, and you can see, especially in the uh, the uh, the darker the two photographs, you can see part of a bench in the background. It just doesn't match the setting of a of a military uh, uh, or scientific examination where they would they would have been taking this precious specimen. Mm -hmm. And I say it with all due respect that I I when I see the photos um, don't understand myself how someone could think it was anything other than a museum display. I just don't see it at all. Um, so, uh, and that's, that's where I come from. And I don't mean to be, you know, um, because I have a great respect, especially for Don Schmidt. I love Don Schmidt. You know, I think I've said that several times. He's a friend. He's a great guy. I really like the guy. I think he's done some great research. Tom's a good guy. And, you know, it has tainted my approach to all of this. And unfortunately, I had to be willing. And, and you know what? I'll say this because I think it, it hurts research. I had to be willing to sacrifice uh, whatever friendship I had with Jaime Musan. And I think that that doesn't speak well to him as a researcher because uh, all we're doing is investigating and sharing research. And I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I don't want Jaime to get mad at me, so I better not come out and just um, give my real opinion. And uh, that's not good. That's not healthy for research. And, you know, we shouldn't have to be uh, afraid of being called uh, what I, I think, you know, I don't even think I've shared this, being called a, uh, he said I uh, uh, was, you know, essentially hurting his character or lying. Uh, 
uh, defamation of character type of thing uh, just because I'm sharing essentially you all and your research, which I know is carefully done. I know that you guys don't mess around and you would not risk your reputations, um, that you have doubled and tripled and quadruple checked everything you guys have done, which you did, and it turned out to be independently verifiable and accurate, um, which uh, n having known you guys and communicated with you guys online, I knew that you guys, uh, if you guys are coming out with something, then it, it's going to be something that's been thoroughly looked at. Oh, and you know, it had... Um had somehow this been evidence of of extraterrestrial life? Because we had some, we had a, a mixture of, of of people, you know, from from UFO proponents to some hardcore skeptics. But you know, even the even the, the hard like Tim Prenny, for example, and Lance Moody, I would cite them as an example of the the more um, um, the the skeptics, or some people would even say debunkers. But if these uh, if there had been you know anything to to suggest this was extraterrestrial, we've been happy to present that information as well. And you know, and it was so fascinating with the build-up to this. We said, you know, if these if these um, claims are true, but it was so disappointing that they weren't because this wasn't. See, when when there's something like uh, oh, you know, even when there's an airplane mistaken as a as a UFO, well, you can learn some from that. You're know, like, okay, here's the flight plan that causes, here's the configuration of lights, and there's still something to be learned. But with this, it just turned out to be such a disappointing waste, uh, and you know, it took so many people's time. I mean, and and I I can't believe how much uh, the time it took. Of where we were really drawn into it, and once things kept building, we we had to you know keep on with it and keep pressing with it and you know it definitely derails some of my personal research on the cash random case and things i was working on but you know it was something we, we had to follow through and, and luckily there were other people like uh, uh, shepherd johnson got involved and he submitted this freedom of information act request and and turned up these documents and included uh, photographs and uh you know so the uh you know it's not just as the the placard um there's all this historical information that supports this, you know, it's so it's overwhelming. And I think the, um, you know, I think it's conclusively solved. So what's, um, what's disappointing to me is that we can look at this and see, oh, well, here's, we don't know exactly why it went wrong, but you know, here's something went wrong, but, but it's, it's conclusively proven, but there, it, it's sort of a symptom in a way. And that this sort of thing happens in other cases, but there's not a, you know, the placard will say is a smoking gun that, that blows the case up. There are the things that we don't have this, but um, the other things need to be looked at, you know, just about as hard. And when this happens, I think people need to acknowledge it, say, you know, here's, you know, here's what went wrong and you let it go and you know, admit it, face facts and, uh, it doesn't destroy ufology. Mm -hmm. It should, you know, it it stings, but it should make things stronger. It's like, you know, if you can weed stuff out, out like this and keep it from happening again and bring it more of a, a scientific approach to things and uh, examine things from as many disciplines you can, it, it's like it, the, uh, I know a lot, a lot of UFO cases are, are, are very, um, 
well, they're almost intangible, but there's there's things that can be examined. You know, I mean, if you can prove something happened at a location, and you know, see what holds up and and what what is strong enough to 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 withstand scientific examination, you know, and and keep investigating those things. And these 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 iffy things and and, and you know, blurry photographs and questionable material. I think that it, it's a huge drain on on people's resources, and, and it can really mislead people. Right. Yeah. Well, I know you you probably le- read and listened to every single thing, and there was a lot uh, out there about this case, uh, um, at least coming from the, the main characters involved. But, I mean, the good thing for me is at least uh, uh, when I get to highlight some of the good work done by all of the people out there, and this is where we should take this, I think, as researchers, it gives us the ability to... Um, essentially network and communicate with others perhaps that we haven't worked with before and then it widens our scope of people we can rely on and work with and uh, to get eyes on to give things you know the hard uh, look that that they need because cases like Cash Landrum or whatever you know others like the media is going to be much harder than we are on these cases and so we need to be really difficult Uh, we need to take a hard look at all of this if we want to present it as something that is credible, um, and I think that is the goal uh, of, you know, ultimately is to get this out and to demonstrate to the mainstream that, uh, you know, there's a real phenomena. That's that's true. And, you know, there I, was, I mentioned Blue Book a couple of times. You know, there's some great cases in there, but they're um they're not necessarily sexy sometimes there's just you know there's this this object that appeared you know there were several witnesses but it's not um you know it's not it's not like a hollywood movie script you know it doesn't you know it it's basically like like a hit and run or a flyby you know you you see it you, you get a good look you know you you see that it's not a it's it's not an earthly aircraft and and that can be sort of documented but there's just the information's limited, so you know there's there's definitely things that are, that are worthy of research, but um, there's there's too much. Um, I think there's too, like too much emphasis on on things as kind of as entertainment. You know, there's definitely an appetite mm-hmm. for it. People are curious, but the uh, you know the the scientific study is is got to be be done. And I think that you, your point about about networking is great because you know the more people we can get involved and and to um, you know continue to, to examine things and as I said earlier from from different uh, different perspectives different scientific disciplines you know I, th- I think that's uh, that's something that could be encouraging I would re- definitely like for for more mainstream scientists to become interested and uh, I, I'm not sure quite how we, we lure things in but you know the the, the presenting um, uh, clean cases, you know, stripped as the sensationalism is, is one way to begin that. Mm-hmm, exactly. So we've gone a bit over, and I want to ask you uh, one last question before we leave, and that is, uh, where does the name Blue Blurry Lines come from? It is. Um, my my first choice was taken, and so was my <laughs> second. But it, it kind of reflects on, well, I was, um, the, the fact that so many things, the details, pictures are blurry and indistinct, and then lines, 
you know, with things that I was writing about it. So it just kind of had a, a double or triple meaning. And also, also something that, uh, uh, I, I tend to do my first drafts on a new notebook paper. So uh, they have some blue lines. <laughs> so it was, you know, kind of a combination of things there. Yeah, I was curious just because it always makes me think of, of Blue Book because I'm fascinated by Blue Book and, and the cases in there. And, uh, and it is blurry. I mean, everything is you have Hynek's point of view, who is, you know, the, the astronomer consultant to Blue Book who had a different point of view than some of the investigators. And, you know, uh, it's used as this investigation to show there isn't a phenomena when really I think you can argue that it shows there is a phenomena. And so it's a blue blurry line to me, Blue Book. So that's what I always think of it as. I was curious that what your original intent was. I have a closing thought for you. Okay, great. This is this is advice. First of all, if you're uh, if you're interested in UFOs, you better have a huge tolerance for ambiguity. There's a lot of things that are going to be unsolved. You got these conflicting details. So, for your mental health, find a hobby, needlepoint, or uh, something with that you can uh, uh, build puzzles, something you can complete and have a sense of satisfaction. Because you're not going to get a lot of answers and, and the pieces are not all going to fit in your UFO investigations. So, you know, d- learn origami or, or something <laughs> that, uh, you know, something you can finish and complete, maybe put on your shelf. Amen to that. I think that you make an excellent point, one that I always make. Uh, there are no solid answers when it comes to this stuff. Uh except for the Roswell slides were a mummy or a mummified child. (laughs) No, but great. Excellent. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this stuff. The Cash Landrum case, I'm so glad that you you tackled that because it shouldn't be forgotten. It's such an extraordinary case. Um, It's been wonderful getting to know you the last couple of years, and I'm so happy to have you on the show. But Thank you again for for joining us, and uh, this was a great discussion. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much to Kurt for joining us today. Such an interesting case. Cash Landrum is one of my favorite cases. We talked a little bit before about um, John Schusler, who uh, used to be the MUFON director in Colorado when I first got involved with MUFON. So he's always served as kind of a mentor for me. And uh, I know this is one of the cases he's really into. I've got his book and had read it. And this is just an extraordinary case that seems to get more and more mysterious the more we look into it. So, you know, I've interviewed some people who have talked about the case a little bit here and there. But such a strange and extraordinary case. I think you all will agree. And it's wonderful that Kurt has taken this on to look more into it. And uh, Kurt is one of these new UFO uh resources out there that uh, it's great to have him Uh, he's doing some great work so thank you so much for joining us Kurt remember you can find him at blue blurry lines we talked about it quite a bit but uh, google that and you'll be able to find his website and see more about this great case so thank you so much thank you to Martin Willis for trying to connect with us uh, earlier for the show we actually did talk for a little while and then it kind of went offline and Unfortunately, couldn't get it working. So uh, thank you so much to Martin. Of course, he does podcast UFO, and he'll join us again next week. Assuming we have a show next week, I'm sure we will. But uh, you never know, people. It's just uh, it's such a fast and 
obscurious, you know, industry this UFO thing, so you never know. But you can find uh, all of the stories that we talked about at openminds.tv. You can also find the latest Open Minds UFO report, which is a YouTube, you know, web series that we're doing, bringing you UFO news on a weekly basis basis uh, via video. So uh, like I said, we talked about on this last one, the Welsh government uh, responding to the UFO questions in Klingon, and we interviewed Nick Pope, who used to work for the UK Ministry of Defense, because one of those questions that they responded to was asking whether the Welsh government worked with uh, the uh, Ministry of Defense. So we talked to Nick about a lot of stuff related to that on the interview, so you can check that out at openminds.tv. You'll also find more information about the UFO Congress. We'll be posting information about speakers soon. I just like to be really, really careful. I like to have all the paperwork in hand before we post the speakers because I want to be sure it's rock solid so I don't post a speaker and then something happens and they can't make it. Um, so I, w- I want to have it rock solid before I do that. And I like to have at least, you know, um, well, at least half the speakers are around that to post once at once. You can see, boom, wow, look at all these cool people. And it is a lot of cool people who are going to be coming to the conference. What's cool about our conference is UFO researchers come even if they're not speaking. So uh, like Sam Friedman, I know, will be there this year. Travis Walton comes every year. Um, ben Hansen comes every year, although he does the Skywatch. So a lot of people come. Uh, even if they're not speaking because it's just the biggest one. Everybody's there, and you can meet, and you can network, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can get a lot of people who are interested in the topic if you have some books to sell or or something like that. So uh, it, our conference is always a lot of fun, and, and we'll have speakers up soon. I got to tell you, though, every year uh, the rooms sell out at the host hotel sooner and sooner, and already – Oh my gosh, earlier than ever, we're, we're going to be sold out of room. So be sure and reserve a room right now. You don't have to put money down to reserve a room. So go reserve your room as soon as possible so you have that taken care of, even if you haven't registered yet. But uh, you'll want to register too, at least by October 1st, because that's when you get the cheap rates and uh, you get the best deals. I did tell you guys, too, we had a World UFO Day actually sale on tickets, and we had a lot of people take advantage of that, which was really smart because um, uh, that way you could get tickets for even cheaper. So right now is where the, the, the tickets are at the lowest, and we've got more registrations than ever already. So everything's looking great, and I want to thank you all who have registered who come to the conference every year. Uh, or if you've only been once, you know, thank you all for, for joining us. I know many others have, have wanted to join us and haven't had the opportunity. So hopefully this year is the year we're going to have a great lineup. You can trust me on that. And I'll tell you more about that as time comes. So openminds.tv. Also, if you're not on our email news list, newsletter, we're trying to send emails on a you know, bi-weekly basis to update you guys on what's going on with the website, uh, what's going on with Open Minds UFO Report, what's going on with Open Minds uh, UFO Radio, and also what's going on with the UFO Congress. So we want to keep you up to date on everything, whatever your interest is. Hopefully it's everything. Um, so go to openminds.tv in the upper right-hand corner. You're going to see some a little box there where you can put in your email address and submit it and then join our email email list 
so you can get those uh, bi-weekly emails. Uh, you can also just email us at contact at openminds.tv. You can email us for anything to that, and uh, I get that, and I can, I can, and the rest of us do so. We can uh, address any of your concerns or be sure to get you on the email list that way. So again, I want to thank Caleb Hanks, who does the opening and close music. Uh, you can find his information on the radio page at openminds.tv. He does something called the Clerk Chronicles where uh, he posts this music for free. But he also has a comic book there that is really cool. He's an artist. This guy is just so creative. He, and he's funny. This guy's hilarious. But he's an artist. His comic book is, is more serious. But uh, you can find all of his work there. Thank him. I want to thank him very much for the opening and closed music, which I love. And I want to thank you all for once again listening. You guys are friggin' awesome. But uh, be sure to join us again. Thank you. And adios muchachos. Left